0: Welcome to the thirty fourth episode of Regulate Tech. With me, Nicholas Peter lumbland and with
1: me, Richard Allen.
0: So, Richard, um, we're going to discuss uh, different ways of enjoying yourself today. We're going to talk about chocolate and cigarettes, and you know how generally people should um, approach issues of not just enjoyment, I suppose, but issues of temptation and issues of regulation and issues of health. So. You posed this question, I think it's a really good one. You know, is social media chocolate or cigarettes? Explain to me yeah. how you're thinking about that question.
1: Well, uh, um, actually, d- just in the last week, we had um, a day which is called El Dia de la Hispanidad, which is the day when uh, Spain celebrates, uh, uh, to the extent that they should do, their, their arrival in the New World. And when, we, when Europeans arrived in the New World, in the Americas, they brought back a number of different products, two of which were tobacco and chocolate, and so that sort of got me thinking again about this sort of notion of you know things that you uh, uh, that we have in our societies that at various times we've had kind of different sort of forms of uh, concern about. And those two products are one that you know they've been around now in Europe for three or four hundred years in the Americas actually for thousands of years, um, but they're ones that people think of as guilty pleasures. The things that you know many many millions of people enjoy uh, chocolate and you know for better or worse millions have enjoyed cigarettes that number is declining over time, but uh, millions of people have enjoyed tobacco products and I think most people who you ask them would say it's a guilty pleasure it's not something I'm particularly proud of, but it's something that I enjoy and often when you talk to people in in social media world uh, um, they'll they'll express the same thing they'll say you look at you know i'm I'm sitting on social media feeds all the time I recognize that, you know, maybe it's not the best use of my time. Maybe it's not, you know, a, a sort of thing that I should go, go out and boast about, but it's my guilty pleasure. And then that feeds into thinking, well, actually, in in this paradigm, if you, if you say roll back the centuries, I think probably a majority of people, uh, at least in Europe, would say, look, you know, since I wish we'd never brought tobacco back, <laughs> that's something that actually – we would quite like to regulate out of existence. So when we regulate tobacco, it's because we actually want to get consumption down to zero, or as close to zero as we can, even if we're not going to outlaw it. And then most people, I think, in Europe would say, "Look, chocolate was a, on balance, a, a good thing that we brought back from from the Americas. It's something that you know, in in excess, can be harmful, but most people, most of the time, can control their consumption of chocolate, and it's something that adds value to your everyday life." So two very different paradigms between a product that you you kind of think is inherently harmful can never – well, is inherently harmful tobacco. It can never be healthy. And a product which can be healthy as long as it's not consumed in excess chocolate. And so which one you think of as social media fitting into will very much affect the way in which you think about regulating the, the services.
0: So let's flesh those two models out then. Uh, if you want yeah. to argue strongly, and we should always sort of a, a, approach this in the way that DC Dennett recommends this, right? It makes the strongest possible argument that, that your op- opponent or the person you're arguing with would make. So let's make the strongest possible argument for social media being tobacco and being cigarettes. What, where do we start? What sort of the, Because you have to then paint the picture of social media as something that lacks any positive externalities.
1: That's right. And I think there are a number of people doing that now and you kind of hear this thing repeated, you know, it's it's social media's tobacco moment. I I think, I mean, I'm not sympathetic to that argument, so just be sort of upfront, but I I think when you're making it, you're essentially saying, look, you know, um, I I think you have to sort of bring the traditional media into it. a world in which people get their information from traditional media, edited media uh, that is controlled by some sort of editorializing entity, and in which your social life is based on um, physical interaction and, you know, let's go to status quo before social media, that you phoned people up uh, or you wrote them letters or I guess maybe we'll extend that to emails, okay, as a sort of modern form of letter writing. So I think you're arguing then that a world in which information comes from these editorialized sources is not shared, Mm -hmm. you know, so widely on a peer-to-peer basis. It's not about me Sort of putting out my views on COVID or vaccines or whatever—it's me consuming views of COVID and vaccines that have come from an naturalized source. And a world in which my social interactions, I say, are are predicated on the fact that I'm having physical contact or I've got some kind of more letter-like uh, communication method going on between me and and other people—that that is a better world. Uh, and so let's get rid of the social media and go back to that world. I think that's the sort of assumption. <laughs> but wouldn't you also I mean let's
0: let's pursue this in, in extremis to sort of really explore the argument. Wouldn't you also say that you know, you would for tobacco, you would say it's a poison. It's essentially a poison society. It creates huge costs in cleanup on, on sort of the, the suffering side for the victims because they are consuming this and they are uh, getting sick from it. Um, and you would, you know, in parallel make the argument that you're consuming social media and our kids are getting sick and they have a, an erroneous self-picture All well, that or self-image is being destroyed, right? But then there's a, there's another argument that you would make if you're trying to make this analogy as strong as possible. And that is saying that just as with cigarettes design and selling of social media is inherently made to increase the dependency on it, to increase how addictive it is. It's the addiction part that we're sort of, that That I think, if I was arguing that social media was big tobacco, I would say it's designed addiction. That's the thing that actually takes the two and brings them together. What would you say to that?
1: I mean, again, I think that the so yes, yes, this addiction point does come up, but but in a sense, anybody who makes any kind of product is doing that. So yeah, there, there is a question I think is, you know, tobacco, the drug nicotine it has chemical properties that make it inherently addictive. Uh, that's the nature of the substance. Um, I, I think it's quite a stretch to kind of say there's something like in inherently addictive in that physical sense uh, that creates that sort of physical dependency from social media arguably it sort of pushes buttons and I think psychologists and others sort of look at this, it pushes buttons that mean that you want to keep going back for it. But again, I would say that, you know, you could argue that for chocolate, you could argue that for uh, potato crisps in the you know, which are consumed in vast quantities in the UK for Coca-Cola, for like a whole range of other uh, consumer products, you could argue, you know, um, similarly are addictive. But I think most people regard that form of addiction. We've used this word loosely. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, I am addicted to Coca Cola is different from I, I am addicted to tobacco. I am addicted to chocolate. I need, I you know, I buy five bars of chocolate a day. Maybe not least because of the prompting of chocolate companies who tell me to buy chocolate every day. But I'm buying five bars of chocolate a day. You would say is a chocolate addiction, but I think we would see that as qualitatively different from a tobacco or a heroin or a cocaine addiction where you're talking about a, a drug that is physically inherently addictive. And, and I, I say, for me, it's a stretch to kind of say in any more than I mean, with, with social media, I'm addicted to TV. You know, I like to watch the TV every day. Uh, I think is much closer to that. And it's not a physical addiction whereby you'll have, you know, physical withdrawal symptoms if you don't get hold of that product. But
0: but you're making a really important point here, which is that the, a lot of things have been identified as addiction under this broader umbrella term. I mean, addiction is something really serious in a medical condition and should be respected as such. But but <clears throat> the notion that you can be addicted to TV is is not at all um, out of what people were actually arguing when TV came. Right. That's right.
1: Yeah, and, and, and actually, I think TV is a much, in many ways, a much closer analogy for social media. That lots of the arguments you have about social media. That it's it's addictive, that it's harmful, that people are doing too much of it, uh, that it's going to rot the brain, that it's going to corrupt children. A lot of those arguments were precisely made, have been made about television over the years. And actually, mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a lot sort of closer paradigm. Now, social media has different characteristics because of this peer to peer nature of the communication, which is both its sort of strength and its weakness in the sense that, that a lot of that peer to peer is where bad peers <laughs> can put out bad content that then uh, becomes problematic. Um, but, the, you know, the sort of fundamental arguments as to why you, why people are saying social media is bad, I think you, you've heard pretty much all of those in respect of television, certainly over the last 30 or 40 years at different times.
0: Yeah, it, 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 I mean, the to me, the epitome of this is Neil Postman um, using ourselves to death. This notion that, that we're sort of slowly being converted into uh, something far worse than couch potatoes. We're sort of, we're losing touch with our democratic institutions, etc. So all of that has been said before, but of TV. And before that, you know, people were worried if their kids read too much over the summer and they weren't out playing in the sunlight. So there's always like this, this, and it's it's fundamental to be fair to the human condition that if you do too much of something, it will put you out of kilter and and at that point you will be you will be harmed by your monomania if you will so there's there's something general there going back to the argument that social media is tobacco that it's designed addiction uh though uh, they, just to sort of get this chemical point out of the way it's right that nicotine is a very powerful alkaloid that creates a deeply addictive pattern but some people would argue that dopamine works the same for social media
1: yes do you think that does? i'm Yeah. um, So again, I would defer to to scientists who study this for the actual sort of technical uh, advice on on whether or not this this you know where where you should draw the line and whether you should regard those um, uh, sort of brain. Uh, chemical uh, releases as something that you know uh, creates a, a difference between this and other things, but again, I've heard dopamine used as an argument for why other products are addictive. It's not. It's not combined to social media. So again, I th- again, I I wouldn't contest uh, the idea that you know people who build social media products as people who make other products. Want uh, use use their techniques to try and get people to come back again and again. That's what they want. That's what you do when you build a product: is you want people to use that product as much as possible. Um, and so that's and that is one of the areas again where regulation will come in. But I think the critical question is: Are we saying that look, you know, uh, it's mostly okay uh, on balance? This thing is is a social good. Uh, or at least is something that we don't think that governments have a right to stop people doing uh, any more than they should stop people drinking Coca-Cola or eating chocolate or any of these other sort of products. A- and therefore, what we're doing is we're just going to put some guardrails around, which actually they do with these other products, like products that contain sugar. You'll put guardrails around in terms of labeling and you know advertising at certain times of day and advertising to certain groups of people. Um, so are we in that bucket, or are we in this bucket? to say, well, I think with tobacco, uh, and that's what's interesting. If you if you are in that place where you say this thing is inherently addictive and always harmful, and maybe that's the difference. Yes, you know, I, I can be, you know, addicted to social media because I'm addicted to going on there. Trying to encourage people in my street to look after the older people during the COVID lockdowns—that yeah, that that literally, you know, some people are very very heavy social media users. That's what they were doing. Now, that I think is different. Arguably, the the hit of going back and seeing who's in your group and who's responded to your messages is is a form of addictive type behaviour. But the thing you're doing is not inherently harmful. Whereas the addiction in with nicotine or with these other Uh, uh, typically sort of illegal harmful drugs you know you're being pulled back to do something every cigarette you smoke is causing you harm there's never a good cigarette that does you good Uh, so maybe that's a a critical difference between the two it's addiction plus harm versus addiction and sometimes harm but Generally, not harm that yeah. I think makes a difference. And if
0: we want to move away from the addiction word, because it sort of it becomes mm. very, I think it's a controversial. Or well, you could talk about habits. Yeah, right? you could say it's a yeah, it's habit. a habit yeah. and it's harmful. Harmful habits because habits are. You know, we're always trying to instill habits in people. Uh, habit of reading, or you could argue, if you wanted to, that anyone who sells you sports shoes is trying to create a habit with you, with greater or lesser success. And it's a completely fueled by endorphins. By the way, when you uh, have a good run and you come back and you feel on a high, there's a chemical right there that can hook you forever if you're not careful.
1: But I thought you were going to say that the habit of buying more and more expensive sports shoes, yes. not, <laughs> not, not, not the habit of running. Oh, I think you're in the minority there, Nicholas. The, the ones who see it as a, a pathway to running as opposed to a pathway to high fashion uh, and admiring uh, looks?
0: Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> I, I'm afraid I've probably overstated my running, but uh, I think that yeah. uh,
1: the, the, uh, that makes it really interesting
0: because what we're then talking about is harmful habits and which harmful habits should we regulate? Now, let's compare the harmful habit of smoking, which I think we're uniformly agreeing is is not. Uh, good for you Uh, with the harmful habit of eating chocolate and what is it is it a difference in intensity in in, is it a difference in the sort of depth and uh uh, heft of the impact what's the what are the dimensions along which we should sort of try to differentiate this out
1: so, so I'm looking at, I think, particularly from the point of view of the regulator, because again, that, there are all of these sort of medical <laughs> consideration, <clears throat> psychological considerations. Which I say, I, I don't think um, I would feel particularly qualified to opine on. But from the regulator point of view, you're sitting in government, and you're, you know, at, looking at these two products, and you look at one product, uh, tobacco, uh, and you look at it, and you go, well, this is kind of all downside from a health expenditure point of view, from a population point of view, if you're g- general concern. For your people point of view, and so you're sitting there going like, not. I mean, I mean, arguably there's some upside in tax revenues, historic tax revenues that you got from it, but I think pretty much every analysis would say, look, the cost to the health service always outweighs any benefit that you get from tax revenues. So you're looking at that and going, this thing, you know, is, is inherently bad. Question: To what extent do I feel that my citizens should have? Uh, the freedom to harm themselves its always going to be harmful uh, and potentially the rest of society kind of has to pick up the tab for for that allowing that harm to continue so that's on one side and when we look at chocolate, it's very very different picture you're looking at this thing and saying well this is largely a benign you know uh, feature of my society there's no way on earth I would ever think that I was going to ban chocolate like it's just like, it's not on the agenda at all um, but what I am seeing is that maybe I have a, an obesity crisis uh, in the country, and that's causing you know some cost to the health service, uh, and again, harm to my citizens who I care about. And so I'm looking at it and saying, look, how do I, is there an intervention I can make that keeps this thing in balance to try and m- maximize the good, which is clearly there, people enjoy it, actually, it's you know, part of my food economy in my country, there's a lot of jobs that depend on it and so on and so forth, um, whilst, uh, you know, trying to mitigate against the, the the chocolate and other sugar fuel products kind of leading to uh, bad health outcomes and other bad social outcomes. So kind of very different way of looking at the two. And I think the crucial difference is, you know, any rational regulator is probably going to have in mind that what they really want to do when they regulate tobacco is, as I say, drive it as far out of existence. Ideally, it would be great if it disappeared altogether, but if it's not going to disappear altogether, kind of drive it as far out of existence as you possibly can. Chocolate, You're kind of happy for it to still feature quite large. You're not trying to, you know, minimize it. You're trying to just deal with a little bit of abuse at the edges.
0: But there's another interesting dimension here too, which is if you sort of leave chocolate aside and you go for sugary drinks instead. You've seen several regulatory um, interventions in countries that are perhaps interested in, in public health or, or sort of more authoritarian about public health, where they essentially say, you know, we're going to tax sugary drinks at this very high rate in order to make sure that fewer people drink them. Or, you know, a fat tax for, for extremely fatty foods with um, different kinds of processed meat, for example. and um, Because it's been proven that these are unhealthy for you. So in the name of of public health, we are going to, to tax these products and we're going to... do But when, when you make that decision, to your point, when you're the regulator, in one case, you're saying... I am going to try to, as far as I possibly can, prohibit this. But in the chocolate case, or even in the sugary dink case, where you're trying just to, you're you're satisfied as a regulator with a nudge. You're saying, I'm just going to nudge you in the right way. But when it comes to the tobacco case, you want the ban. So between the ban and the nudge, there is something really interesting going on in terms of what the regulator is thinking about your agency as a citizen. So walk us through that. How should we think about the agency here? Uh,
1: I mean, a a really um, good way, sort of, visualize the difference. (laughs) Genuine way, literally visualize the difference is if you look at what Europe has now done with cigarettes. If you buy a packet of cigarettes, which is not to be recommended, don't, don't, don't. This is not advice. But if one were to buy a packet of cigarettes, you would see today that it's in a mud green packet with no branding on it and massive great photos of like horrible things happening to the human body and great big warnings saying, this product's going to kill you. And that that's evolved over the years. As, as layers of regulation come on, you know, bit by bit, that's happened. I, I don't know about other European countries, but in the UK, the cigarettes have to be kept behind a closed cupboard door in the shop. They can't be on up, open display. They can't be advertised. Uh, and the whole idea is to create this really unattractive products that you sort of guiltily have to go and ask for and there's a real load of hassle to get Look at that. So that's visually what it looks like when the regulators decided they want to drive something out of uh, Existence. That's the 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 as close to a ban as you can get treatment The nudge treatment on the other hand is you go into a shop and the, the chocolate bars are all out on display and they've all got bright colored packaging and they're allowed you see adverts for chocolate on TV and all around the place They're still allowed to advertise themselves but what you may see now, for example, is nutritional labelling uh, on the packet, which will kind of have a thing that will be read saying this has got too much fat or sugar for you. But it's not. It's, it's, it's there. And there's arguments about how prominent it should be, but it's there and reasonably subtle. And actually, many of those schemes are administered by the industry. There will be debates about, uh, and again, different countries, about whether those products should be allowed to be for example, kept by the till in the supermarket, or whether you're going to have a regulation or a self-regulatory or other method that says, look, we wanna we don't want them in the places where people just grab them and throw them in the basket. And as uh, so says debates around placement in the supermarket. There may be restrictions on on when you can advertise them, uh that you can't advertise them, for example, at times when lots of children are watching them. And again, in some countries you may get some labeling on on the ads. But a very different treatment. The product is a normal product (laughs) like soap powder or anything else it's prominent it uses branding it makes itself attractive with some stuff around the edges versus a product which is now as I say hidden and made to look you know foul and unpleasant and unwelcoming and not allowed to advertise itself and and really as a all the signals are we hope this thing will die
0: so we have we have two uh, harmful habits in a sense because uh, mm. chocolate can be good for you in certain doses i'm sure it produces serotonin and things like that and you know <laughs> you could have a small concentration effect from consuming nicotine that could help you work on something and so they they are mm. like on the edges but let's let's assume just for the sake of argument that these are two harmful habits and we have said that the you know agency will play a role in whether or not the regulator decides to do something here and for chocolate we are left with our agency possibly with a little bit of a nudge in terms of of a nutritional label for cigarettes, it's an outright ban. How much of that is dependent yeah. on the notion that the, the let's, let's just sort of dig into the harm. This is your area of expertise, yeah. harms. It's sort of yeah. the, the, the harm thing. So the cigarettes have several different kinds of harms that are interesting. They have a deep economic harm to society, but one harm that we haven't discussed that's kind of interesting in the analogy is passive smoking. So if you smoke, yeah. people around you uh, will have adverse health effects. As far as I know, there's no such thing as passive, passive chocolate eating.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> and, and again, yes. Yeah, so you, you and you can eat chocolate in public, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. Again, interestingly, the regulation has increasingly, you know, it, it happened actually quite quickly. From from very very lax. I was actually when I I first went into the House of Commons, which was of uh, the UK's Parliament, like. Uh, quite a while ago, but not that long ago, less than twenty-five years ago, one of the first uh, measures that had to be debated on a committee I chaired was whether or not to ban smoking in the library of the House of Commons. Like so so members of Parliament were still smoking literally in the library, you know, which now we'd look at and say is disgusting. And I you don't know, when I was young, you smoked upstairs on the bus but not down so the On uh, the best one was left hand side of the cinema, not the right hand side, like in a cinema, that it was finally <laughs> had the smoking and non-smoking. So like all of this craziness and And a lot of people say we can't do they can't do anything and then there's this sort of snowball where you know workplaces banned it and then everybody's pretty much banned it uh and now people sort of huddle <laughs> on on uh, in specific zones for it so that's that that sort of effect has happened and again i I think that you you hear a lot of this sort of argumentation in the in the social media space I think people do very much sort of draw on that that analogy and kind of say, well, look, social media causes knock-on-harm to others. The activity that some people have has this sort of network harm. So it is there's something like the sort of passive smoking effect, which means that we need to sort of crack down on it much more heavily than we would do if we if we didn't see that sort of broader societal effect. There's some kind of exhaust or fumes from social media that is inherently harmful and leads to this motivation to really, really crack down on it. Uh, and, and banning social media in social spaces is kind of an interesting concept, but there's some some sort of notion that it needs to be, you know, uh, uh, there needs to be sort of walls around it, and and you need to uh, sort of uh, have barriers that make it harder for people to get into social media spaces. That's that's at the heart sort of some of the regulatory proposals.
0: And social media is another interesting uh, aspect of of the harm here is that we talk a lot about the consumption of social media and the consumption of cigarettes and chocolate. But for social media, there's also a very strong uh, production side. I mean, as has been recognized yes. again and again in research, Yochai Benkler writes about this, right? It's, it's a, a, a mm. peer production system where a lot of people can produce as well as consume. How does that factor into the analogy? Because obviously we wouldn't, there's, there's this rather strict regulation of foodstuffs and of cigarette production, etc. So the production-consumer dimension in this particular harm, how should yeah. you think about that?
1: So, so actually, I mean, you put your finger, I think, on a really critical point for the regulatory debate generally, that it is, is very, very heavily skewed in favor of consumption. You know, the, the harms that we often focus on are somebody has gone online and seen bad stuff in their feed. Uh, and it's much less focused on production. And I think there are two aspects to production that that are unexplored, that need a lot more explanation. So one is, is uh, um, you know, how the law uh, generally should apply to people who produce. And so you can look at things like privacy law. I mean, the, the classic one being, you know, when I post photos of my friends uh, on online on social media, I don't typically go and get a written consent <laughs> for the, from each of them before I post a photo. And And in most cases, that's not going to be an issue. Um, But in some cases, it might be. And technically, if you look at the law, I'm probably breaking the data protection regulation. (laughs) Like every time I post photos of my friends, I'm a producer, I'm liable for that content. Uh, I haven't necessarily secured the consents I need to do. So the thing is that there is a gap between what the law says and the individual producer of content who may be crossing all kinds of lines without even potentially knowing about it. That's one piece of the production side. The other piece is, look, as as we... uh, potentially make access to social media more restrictive through some of the regulatory measures or you know put, put more burdens on people, uh, for example if they do want to produce and share content is going to have quite a dramatic effect on freedom of expression I mean there's, there's no doubt at all like the, the mo- you know the moment is, is uh, it's not entirely free but a relatively open environment in which ordinary people can just sign up to social media services and start producing stuff we created our podcast we've you know <laughs> we go out there we sign up we put the podcast up there and all, off we go uh without really many barriers in in the way we're not having to produce our identity documents or this <laughs> in order to do that and so again i, I think the production side is is uh or the production by ordinary people side is potentially undervalued and uh, one of the risks i think we have is that we're going to bring in place regulatory frameworks that say look let's Let's up the ante. Let's make it harder to be a producer, more hoops to jump through because we're worried about the minority of people who produce bad content. And then we find that there's actually quite a lot of pushback from ordinary citizens to go, hang on a minute. you know, I just want to go online and share some photos of my friends. And uh, now I'm going to have to do all of this and I don't feel that's appropriate. So I think there's something there. Uh, Again, taking us away from our analogies, but I think this, this is why it's kind of interesting. It leads us into thinking about the regulation of technology and how it can be the same or different from other forms of regulation. And I think with social media in particular, the regulation of the ordinary citizen as producer is perhaps the area that's not receive the, the attention it deserves given how important this is for freedom of expression
0: and I think this is a huge difference I mean this is a part where the analogy doesn't really apply because if you regulate social media you naturally regulate both sides producer and consumer in some ways and you can concentrate on one or the other but if you want to ban the consumption of cigarettes you are uh, of course regulating the production of cigarettes but sort of the, the major effect of that ban is going to be on the consumption side so I'm I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm interested in, in uh, further exploring them. Because the other thing, of course, is that we have a. If we say that social media is a harmful habit, as our hypothesis stated, uh, yeah. that harm has to be weighed against the benefits of the habit, right? So that's right. Why? I guess that the question I would have is, why don't we discuss the upside of social media when there's so many good things happening? And yeah, what's happening there?
1: Uh, i mean i find that fascinating we've kind of almost lost sight of it we've banked the benefits and the benefits are there so you know uh was in the debate that a couple of weeks ago when all the facebook services went down and there was a little bit of glee from from people who are who who do see social media as tobacco like you can't get your tobacco for three or four hours and uh and hoping people would turn their back on it and not not go back and actually you know people were they missed the services and they were happy to go back to them. And I don't think that's because they're all raving addicts. I think it's just because the services are incredibly useful in, on a day-to-day basis. They're how you, you know, find out what's happening with your family at a distance and they're how you find out what's happening with your sports team, all of that stuff, which is entirely benign. But yeah, it's like we've banked it and lost sight of that. And, and for very good reason, the debate is very much focused on on the harmful side of it. Um, and then there is a risk that you overregulate because of that. I mean, <clears throat> Another area that I think uh, uh, is an instructive example would be, uh, again, a favorite we keep coming back to, the famous e-privacy directive, which regulates cookies in the European Union. And I think that's based on the notion, again, the notion that cookies are tobacco, co- cookies are all bad, and the regulation you know, didn't ban cookies. But I think the intent of the people who framed that regulation was absolutely to make it as difficult as possible and try and, you know, their goal, their their ideal outcome would be it would get so difficult to use cookies, particularly for advertising purposes, that was their main target, that people would just stop doing it. And so a bit like, you know, the plain packaging and all of the obstacles, the intent was to put so many obstacles in the way of people using cookies for advertising that they would give up uh, and that battle is still ongoing there's court cases ongoing so a yeah, prime example and and again in that debate all the focus is on the harm and and there is some potential harm that people are using cookies to collect personal data and then abusing it using it in ways which would be harmful to the individual but then we lost sight of all the positive uses of cookies and you know people in the industry were left saying but hang on a minute uh, you know, cookies do all of these kind of useful things. They help the internet run. They, they make it so that when you go on a website, it's sort of friction-free, all of this stuff. Uh, and again, that's sort of lost in the debate as, as everyone focused on the harm. And and they went straight for that tobacco paradigm. And again, I think as we look at current legislation that's going on, there's a, the EU's Digital Services Act and the UK's online uh, safety bill. If they follow the tobacco paradigm, I think they're then going to end up with those cookie-banner-type measures, which essentially are are trying to put up a lot of friction to try and stop online services from doing things that the framers of the legislation think are harmful. Yes. So it won't be nudge, uh, it won't be ban, but it will be, say, like with cigarettes right now, this very, very heavy-duty set of measures that is aimed at strongly discouraging, ideally with, with a, a sort of outcome of driving something out of the sector. And, and you know in, in terms of, of cigarettes um there's this hope
0: that people don't need to smoke they haven't always smoked et etc et etc with sugar it's a little bit harder but but there's there's something that we discussed before that's kind of interesting with cigarettes you mentioned people <laughs> huddling in smoking boxes and there are these horrible little plastic boxes and airports where you don't understand how people <laughs> go into those and smoke I don't think you need, need to bring a cigarette to be honest you should have to go in and <laughs> inhale twice and you've probably got nicotine for a lifetime but but there's like it's there's an interesting display effect on behaviors, which leads me to another question that I think is interesting in the comparison between chocolate and cigarette. And that is the normative pressures on people. So normative pressures on cigarettes are quite uniform. People are sort of they're tutuing you if you're smoking, and they will they will furrow their bro and, and look at you seriously if you're firing up a cigarette somewhere. There's like a normative alignment with the law that I think enables the ban. But if someone has chocolate in public, that's not happening. There's a little bit of, of, of you know, we, we tend to discriminate against people who are obese in a way. That's, that's I think, deeply unfortunate and, and obviously not allowed. But, but there is not as much normative pressure there. What's the interplay between normative pressure across these habits and legislation?
1: Yeah, interesting though. There, there, there may be a gap though between the normative pressure amongst those who make legislation, and so you know the the kind of people that we would mix with in in internet policy circles. Where I would say that you, you do get a majority of people who are hostile, particularly uh, <laughs> to the big tech companies, and uh, you know there'll be a, people proudly say, "Look, I'm not on Facebook. I signed off Facebook." Including actually, I always used to find sort of curious that I would you know, be dealing with regulators who would then proudly go, you know, I, I would never touch your product with a barge pole. And it's like, but how do you understand how it works? Not to regulate it. Let's not go there. But they, I think there's a sort of normative view amongst those who are very close to these issues, to say, look, I think there is a strong belief that social media stuff is pretty terrible and pretty bad. Um, Obviously, the people who work at the tech companies are an exception, but they're a minority within that conversation. And that's quite different, actually, from societal normative view where where you just look at the numbers and everybody's using the services. So there's potentially going to be uh, a a point of tension between those who are framing the legislation who will feel this is perfectly normal to ban this stuff, and those who are going to be... Uh, well, and and sorry, the mistake is actually they would see the people being affected as the tech companies. So the debate is sort of seen too narrowly as one between regulators, politicians, policymakers, and tech companies, and we're missing <laughs> the most important constituency, which are those millions and millions of ordinary people who use them. And the idea that they would just sort of passively go along with this, I think, you know, could be stretched too far. Um, uh, again, it'd be, be interesting to... Uh, see what happens with the the cookie measures over time, where you know the normative view amongst policymakers was we just you know this is right, cookies are bad, and we're just going to get rid of them. Um, I think the public view, if there is uh, one that's been captured, it tends to be frustration at the cookie banners and and the steps they're made to go through. And again, interestingly, in the UK, we have a, a government that's sort of. Quite well attuned to populist uh, idea or popular idea, should I, I don't know which is the right word? Um, <laughs> but they've already started uh, flying a kite to suggest that they may want to change UK data protection law now outside the EU to kind of do away with these cookie banners. I read so that they're clearly picking yeah. up some vibe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was a, yeah. clearly picking up some vibe, which seems intuitively, you know, correct. I mean, I'm, I think most people who are using the internet are not delighted to be asked to do three or four clicks to get onto popular websites, mm-hmm. and if of the choice would. Would not do that. So um, yes, a potential gap between the views of those making the policy and those who are going to be subject to the policy. Perhaps not exceptionally in this area, but could be quite acute. And,
0: and if you, again, if we go to, to norms and look at chocolate, I mean, one of the one of the most interesting normative inventions um, since the 1950s it's, is a collective, shared, collaborative normative invention that we call the diet. yes right there's like this dietary program you can do everything from low uh, glucose to uh, atkins to um, what is called high fat something something low low carbs low carbs high fat and 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 so uh, why are we not talking more about diets when it comes to social media you could easily imagine that right And, and 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 In addition to that, just to sort of complete the question, is that what the tech company is trying to do with all of their screen time stuff, et cetera, trying to get us the tools and technologies to actually start developing dietary programs here?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think that is the area to consider. That's the alternative. So if we're, if I I mean, we're so focused on the tobacco paradigm in the regulatory debate that that um, that's sort of been so dominant. I think the dietary paradigm actually is much better, and and I think you're right that the tech companies uh, have have taken some tentative steps in that direction, Mm -hmm. but it requires. It requires the rhetoric to shift. If the rhetoric at the moment—and you've heard it, and I've heard it—you know, you know, social media is responsible for every ill in the world. It's it's uh, poisoning the minds of children, destroying democracy. Like you, dun, 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 you get the whole list of of all the bad things it causes. It requires you to change that rhetoric to be saying uh, social media is uh, actually an important and enjoyable part of our our media diet and our social diet. Um, and we just need to uh, do some nudges and change some stuff at the edges in order for it to to uh, settle down as a healthy part of our diet. And I'm just not sure that the people who are very interested in regulating this in the most part, there are some who are who are sort of in that space, but I think in the most part that the rhetoric tends to be much more extreme and doesn't allow for those complementary or positive uh statements to be made about about social media so uh, again politics you get that people sort of head to the extremes and there's this you know uh, utopian dystopian sort of dichotomy that those who say social media is entirely dystopian uh, uh in contrast to I actually think when the tech companies started out they were utopian about it social media is going to save the world and you know uh, create instant democracy everywhere so we're sort of still in that utopia dystopia uh, dichotomy rather than heading into a world which I think is much much more sensible and hopefully I think DSA has actually got a good chance of going there. It's got a, a model of doing codes of practice and things like that that could end up as, as to your point, let's have a balanced diet. And the balanced diet has traditional media in it, and it has television, uh, you know, as a form of entertainment in it, and it has YouTube and video streaming in it, and it has social media in it. And if we like with our food groups get all these things in balance, then then we're fine. Uh, but we don't we don't need to you know, treat social media, say, as something that just needs to be squeezed out of the diet altogether, because that would be a huge loss. We'd actually lose something that now is giving us a lot of value.
0: Wouldn't that require, I mean, in a certain sense, I think that seems to me to be very sensible, but it also seems to require uh, decoupling time spent from uh, the business models that the social media companies are currently in. Yes.
1: Yes. I mean, so so again, if you uh, were following the Facebook debate, there's, they're, they're, Facebook had this notion of, sort of time well spent. Their, their evolution was to say, uh, "We're not just focused on time spent." Oh, this is Tristan,
0: right? I, with Tristan, uh, I, oh yeah, 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 he has a website yeah, called yeah. Time Well Spent. Uh, yeah, he so used to work, to work at well Google, better. I think. Yeah,
1: uh, that's right. As he came out of that, so there's that, and Facebook had a, a version. Like Tristan Harris, had, Tristan Harris, uh, yes, and, thank and, you. And, that's right. And F- Facebook had a version of it, which they called. Well, I, I mean. Tristan may contest with his version of it, but the thinking was along similar lines to say we need to move from a simple metric of time spent, quantitative, quantitative, to one that has a qualitative element, It must be uh, time well spent in his terms or in, in Facebook's terms, they said they were changing the news feed t- t- towards what they would call meaningful social interactions. Uh, so m- the meaningful being important, is that something that means something to you. Now <laughs> that's contentious actually in the news again now because part of that shift was to say, look, you know what people seem to want, what our users seem to want and what seems meaningful to them is more connection with their family and friends, more content shared by their family and friends than by, you know, random, or not necessarily random, but professional organizations that they've connected with. Um, So it means you bias in favor of content shared by individuals, potentially against content on pages or in groups or sort of organized uh, from, from sort of bigger publications. And part of the criticism of that is that the quality, depending on how you see it, the quality of Information shared by your friends and family is higher in terms of social value to you, because they're people you're close to. But in terms of informational value, it may be less good quality because they're sharing stuff that they think or stuff that they found as opposed to necessarily you know, uh, filtering it or editing it for for truthfulness or anything else. So you're sort of in this balance. But but the notion that, I mean, a, a lot of the work that goes on around algorithms, social media algorithms, which we're all uh, focused on, is precisely in that area. It's, uh, it depends on a set of value judgments about what you think constitutes time well spent, quality time on social media. Um, and again, the way in which uh, the the platforms make those decisions will often end up Leaving them attacked from both sides. Uh, people who think that they've, you know, biased in favor of one form of content uh, that they don't like will criticize them. People who think they're biased against their content uh, will criticize them. And we talked last week about decision making, and it's like. You know, almost impossible for them to get that decision right
0: right and they, but, but I do think still that you know time well spent and the whole idea of, of engagement driving engagement with friends and family or sort of the information content there's there's something at the very basic level of decoupling time versus the, the business model overall where where um, uh, that would mean opening up for example for subscription models other kinds of models that allow for um for uh, the revenue to be not directly linked to the number of minutes you spend on the website. And and that, to me, leads to another perspective that I think is interesting, and that is that um, if you're in the chocolate industry, if we sort of dig into your analogy, because I I love this idea of chocolate versus cigarette, um, one of the ways in which you try to sort this is that you've seen very quickly that there's like a social stratification across uh, chocolate consumption. Uh, there are the milkier chocolates, the, the sort of milk chocolates, right. the ones that have uh, stuff in them, caramel, et cetera, et cetera, that are not as high quality as the little piece of chocolate you get next to your espresso in Italy after dinner. Yes. right. And so there's like this range of products there that that seem to correspond to one one way to say it is social strata, right? There's like a social stratification in your chocolate consumption. Should we expect something like that to happen too? Because isn't it amazing that social media is so much one product in a sense that is not differentiated across the social spectrum or across the the, the quality yeah. spectrum? Like what's the what's the 85 percent cacao version of Facebook?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I actually think I think it is becoming more stratified. Interesting to that point. So, so I think everybody um, was eating the same chocolate. Yes, uh, to follow that uh, for a period of time, and and you know there was the early the MySpace chocolate <laughs> uh, that was replaced by the Facebook chocolate. But actually, I think now, you know, the signs are that people are uh, uh, stratifying and choosing according to. You know their own preference, and actually their demographic uh, characteristics. So, that, so you will. I, I don't think that. Um you're getting a uniform audience. People talk a lot about Facebook getting older and that the Facebook users are older. There's platforms like TikTok that seem to skew very young. Uh, you know, uh, again, the people who work in the companies will be, I'm sure, experts on on the precise reasons why people make these choices. But um, any of us who've got teenagers, will talk to them about, like, you know, why Instagram, why TikTok, why Snapchat, you know, why not Facebook, all of this sort of stuff. So I think, actually, we've gone from a pretty – unipolar market to one that over time is going to split out and then there was always such variation with platforms like twitter which i think was sort of heavily skewed towards certain sectors uh, um, sort of celebrities and uh, uh, politicians and media and uh, so you get a different kind of world there and people talk actually within twitter about different twitters uh, that exist within that space i think we are all um so to follow the analogy, I think people are differentiating their chocolates more, differentiating their, their social media more over time. Uh, but there's still some best sellers. Um, yeah. and and you know, the best sellers, again, m- maybe uh, how far does one want to go with analogy? But <laughs> I think in the in, in the chocolate market, I think we can say that the sort of sh- more sugary, milkier products tend to be the best sellers. And the the really the ones I eat because I uh, have a sugar thing and so I'm seventy percent cacao plus like I'm not going to eat anything less. They are smaller niche products and more expensive. Um, yeah. So, yes, maybe there's something in there. The, the bigger the service, the more likely it is to be milky and sugary.
0: Yeah, that's, and, 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 and there seems to be a lot of space for innovation here because the, the tendency still seems to be to maximize participation in these social media platforms. Yeah. And so if you're Facebook, you go like, oh, no, we're older. Let's recruit the kids. And, and that creates a, a weird dynamic in which you're trying to get kids in uh, to the platform, and it doesn't really work. You could imagine a world in which you're like, okay, we're older. Let's have some darker colors to this design. Let's sort of increase the font size. Let's let's make sure that there's like a, another set of content and slam a price tag on it that people can actually pay if they're a bit older or a bit later in their career. So, do you see a world in which platforms will consciously move into different niches, or do you think that once you're a come all serve all platform, you're going to be stuck in that paradigm of maximizing for all?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think both, it, one of those were both happening. So interesting, there is experimentation around these paid for more niche services and the classic would be Substack and the various kind of newsletter services, which in a sense are saying it's time you might otherwise have spent on social media. You're now spending reading content, but you can also produce, but it's primarily a kind of consumption platform. Your feed is your email inbox and you're reading a bunch of content that you've paid for. Um, And so, I and for the older uh, reader, the older user, that at the moment at least seems to be really popular. Question: How long, you know, can it be sustained, and uh, whether or not people will move on from that? But at at the moment, we are seeing experimentation in that space. But having said that, the reason I still say both is, I think it's really difficult for uh, an internet platform to kind of go this big and no bigger. (laughs) You know, it's really so embedded in the DNA that because of this thing, the internet allows you to connect to anyone in the world. The potential is this global audience. Yeah. Maybe once the balkanization that we've talked about in previous episodes, if that ever happens, and actually it's a real pain now to offer your services to particular countries or particular segments, like the the things have got a lot harder, then maybe you'll say, look, my natural market is this, I'm just going to focus on this. But as long as we're in a world where your potential market is all internet users everywhere, I I think the drive then to say, look, I want a product that reaches as many of those as possible is so strong. Uh you know, it's hard to see someone going, Yeah, if I get, you know, fifty million users, I'm fine, I'll just stop there. Yeah. And I'll not try and get another fifty million. I
0: do think um, you will find though, and I think an interesting thing is that I think there's a demand for certain um, exclusivity and scarcity. So you will find, I think, the growth of platforms like Clubhouse that will limit the amount of people who can join a room uh, at some arbitrary cap and say that this is how many people can join this particular platform. You're still on Clubhouse, so they are still enjoying the global reach, but they're recognizing this fact that, for, um, that there's a value to scarcity in social media. There's a value to scarcity and yeah. ephemerality. So something that only exists for a little while with a few select people. There's something to that that's now being recreated. A value that's being rediscovered in a right. And so the I think I think the age of of, of the, the club might very well be coming back where you're sort of you're building clubs on top of frameworks and platforms but those clubs are going to be scarce in, in number of seats that you can actually have and ephemeral in the sense that it's not recorded for uh, posterity what's happening there that's that seems to me to be uh, a way to to get more dark chocolates
1: Yes and and I think it's actually echoed in in um real life. It's interesting that we look at internet trends but internet trends are driven by people and people express themselves also in the streets and buildings around them and certainly as a Londoner the the growth of the private club you know if if the classic big social media platform was the big noisy pub that you just walk in anyone walks in uh, and there's a big sort of noisy environment I've certainly seen a shift in London towards more select, for better or worse, uh, there seems to be a reasonable re- reasonable fashion uh, for people to rebuild clubs. And it would be a surprise if those real-life trends weren't also echoed uh, uh, on the internet. But again, we have to be really clear that they're expensive and exclusive. That's the thing, uh, right? And so it yeah. does introduce a whole other set of questions about equity. And again, the, the criticism, we'll maybe have another episode where we talk about the advertising model and how all that works. But, you know, whatever the criticism of it, look at the bare bare bones and you would have to say that you know uh, uh consumer goods companies and car manufacturing people have basically been paying to provide the infrastructure so that hundreds of millions of poor people around the world can access social media like that's the reality of it they it's cross subsidized by by uh big companies spending on advertising And take that away and make it more exclusive. And you have lost something. And again, people may say, yippee, but uh, there's definitely a loss there. Um, If you close all of the pubs that anyone can just walk in and you're only left with the clubs, um, then... You know, there's a social equity issue. But that's, that's quite an
0: important, important issue, right? We should expect segmentation to follow polarization because polarization sort of yeah. splits a society apart. And, and essentially mm. what we're doing, you, you could argue if you wanted to be uh, harsh about it, that uh, the social media legislation that's coming now is actually accelerating that trend, which means that more um, yeah. platforms will be looking at how to build smaller, more easily moderated uh, subsets on their larger platform where things go on that they can feel responsible for and take liability for. But this in turn will mean that polarization then moves into its next natural step, which is fragmentation. And you have got a fragmentation yeah. of society on top of a polarization. And as you say, it's not just an equity issue. And that's actually a question of how our democracy works, because it's dependent on institutions that everyone adheres to and believes in and it's hard to do that when you get increasing fragmentation on top of polarization so maybe what we should be wishing for is is social media platforms that include all and can put the brakes on the fragmentation that we should expect in the next five to ten years yeah
1: i, I think it's very it's re- this one is a really difficult one because you're right as the legislation comes in if it raises the barriers makes you know makes it difficult you you have to restrict who can produce content on the service. Uh, you have excess liability for, for the extra liability for what happens on the service, uh, y- your ability to use the advertising model has been of so, so severely downgraded, then there is a risk yeah, that, you know, business will follow, uh, the law and will end up creating more niche services for individual groups of people. Now I will put out something which is probably highly contentious, but I think it's worth thinking about. Um, it, you know people complain and say well the problem is on these big internet platforms these politicians you know push out lots of content uh, to people and they complain about it being hyper targeted and there's, there's you know some something in there but but essentially politicians are using the big platforms to get their message out and and the reason i think people have said is when when a politician they don't like does that but for every sort of populist leader there's a you know s- somebody who uh, is a small party with perfectly good kind of intentions that's coming up from the outside and trying to break in uh to a a political system and try and change it for the better maybe an anti-corruption candidate or whatever it is they're trying to sort of come up through the ranks and the big open platforms allow them to do that um they they can get in there for the you know perhaps the first time a a really small political organization can get out there and build uh support once we've all broken up if we do end up breaking up into little clubs and, and end up restricting everything and you've got to have like a you know a huge fund of potential sort of liability costs available or insurance for that before you can go onto those services then it is going to hurt, limit the opportunities for some of those smaller forces coming into the world. So it's it's difficult because it's you know it's the other side of a coin that many many people are upset about, which is uh, yeah, uh, political parties sort of uh, appearing to be manipulating people through these large platforms. Um, but at the same time, it's it's think about it from the upstart political parties' point of view: how else are you able to get out there, particularly if, you know uh, uh, less democratic forces control the media in your country if you're squeezed out of everywhere else how else do you get out there and get your message out and build support for your cause uh, um, so that may be the price we end up paying uh you know if we get the regulation it's right. a
0: really interesting point and i think it's it sort of I, I saw some research suggesting that that uh, new entrants in the political market actually uh, use social media more and it it, it um uh, it underpins their effort. And and I think it, it leads to, to another uh, conclusion on top of what you said, or sort of more of a generalization, which is that one of the things that is horrendously underestimated or undervalued with social media generally is discoverability, the discoverability mechanisms yes. built into them. You talk about dissemination, but you don't talk about discovery. And I think that's really interesting because we always discuss, well, this, this content is spread everywhere, but we're not discussing, you can... Discover all of this new content, and I think discoverability is a core quality in many of these social media platforms. And I think mm. it's, it's sort of just repeating what you're saying, but I think it's a it's a it's one of the things that it would be worthwhile thinking more about.
1: Uh, absolutely, and and I think again the fear from the critics is that what you're discovering is cigarettes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, because they're focused on the bad content that is discovered through social media which is there i you know i, I uh i may be getting bombarded with anti-vax content cigarettes the social media equivalent of that but not focusing on the chocolate <laughs> that you may be getting uh which is perfectly good stuff that you're going to consume is actually going to be very good for you good for you in the uh, sense of both enjoyable and potentially nutritionally good for you uh that you can get through social media at the same time. Right.
0: but i think so to end on on a <laughs> a happy note. No, And on a more speculative note, um, what, yeah. one of the things that it makes, made me think when you talked about chocolate and cigarettes is that it, it should be increasingly the case that we see people in their New Year's resolutions talking about their social media use yeah i'll uh, i'll uninstall this social media app from my uh, phone and just use it on my computer or i'll spend less hours on this or that i mean the the five most common uh, us adult uh, new year's resolutions currently are Doing more exercise, that's chocolate. Losing weight, that's chocolate. Saving more money, that's an interesting one. I'm not sure exactly where that fits in. Improving diet, that's chocolate. And then pursuing a career ambition. When do you think you'll start to see New Year's resolutions around the way we consume information and engage in social media?
1: If ever. I mean, I think people have... Yeah, I I actually think they've done... There again, they draw on another analogy. It tends to be the alcohol analogy, doesn't it? It's the dry week or the dry month. I'm going to have a social media-free week or social media-free yeah. month. So much more that. And, and 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 often they'll kind of say that they fail. So there's, <laughs> there's something uh, uh, they'll find it really hard and really difficult and kind of frustrating. But yeah, so th- so I think uh, people are doing it, but they're again perhaps pulling on the wrong one. It would be it would be better to be saying uh, t- perhaps I think for most people it's less dramatic. I'm going to give up chocolate, <laughs> or I'm I'm going to have one bar of chocolate uh, every two days instead of two bars of chocolate every day. I think might be a better kind of resolution a more realistic resolution because you're then not throwing out the, the good with the bad, the kind of, I must abruptly stop doing this for a month, which is more the alcohol type resolution. I think to my mind is perhaps n- not helpful and, and and not accurately reflective of this good, bad mix that you get from social media versus other products. Yeah.
0: And, and in a future episode, we'll discuss whether, uh, whether it's <laughs> beer as well. So, <laughs> that's yes. Good. Well, uh, thank you for this. I think we, on that note, we should conclude this podcast episode it can be found
1: on your yeah. website, which is? www.regulate.tech And and I think on this episode, we should, we should thank loyal listeners, because I think this week, we're confident we're going to hit 5,000 downloads. We, we are, which is <laughs> so amazing. Thank you the, very much. Yeah. So, sitting through five thousand hours of—not uh, uh, every individual, but five thousand hours of listening—we hope has taken place and given people some some pleasure and uh, value as well for their daily daily lives. And- uh, this is certainly
0: time well spent.
1: There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, and let's connect in the next episode.